The difference between you and them is that when they go to work in the morning, they tell each other they should. And when you go to work every morning, you tell yourself you can't. It's so much better when you're a software owner, not just a developer. I feel like developers are like absentee parents. There was a minute where you were the best, and those minutes carry you for years afterwards. I have this theory that people create the software and the companies that are an expression of their core values. When a vendor shows up and tells me, I'm gonna solve your problem, then you're gonna pay me money. Those are the vendors I trust, but it's in that order. Hello, and welcome to OllieCast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io. And I'm Rachel Chalmers with Marion Ventures. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. Adam, you've been a pioneer in the cultural change, DevOps and so forth. What was the hardest part of that? What was the hardest part of What's that? What's the gnarliest culture shift you've ever had to live through? I mean, this one was the gnarliest culture shift. I, I mean, the shift from being a systems administrator, where I worked for a series of people who occasionally appreciated me but mostly didn't give a shit about me, mm. to being the the job and the function that without which none of the modern technology era gets to exist like that was gnarly mm-hmm. you know where yeah. like like your own self esteem was like hey none of you care about me at all and then sort of going through the cultural shift to being like oh actually like you need me the nerds um, have inherited the earth <laughs> yeah you sort of have inherited the earth but then realizing that it wasn't cuz you were a bad in the first place yeah. you know like you sort of swallow that point of view about yourself where you're like yeah yeah i know i'm not like a software developer yeah. <laughs> you know i'm not like a or like a business person or whatever and so i'm not like i'm not as good as you guys i never had that i believe you <laughs> <laughs> every place i've ever worked ops has ruled the roost yeah, I mean, we certainly had power. So like I I think there was a minute where like as a team or as people like we had influence and we could say no to things and we could Oh no, people um, would come to know, us with, with a platter it. just like, "Here, here is my thing. Is it good enough?" I loved that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess we got some of that. I got some of that too. Oh, this story is the perfect example of this. So, we had a boss. He was actually sort of my boss's boss. And it was Systems Administrator Appreciation Day. And this was like <laughs> a thing that happened, you know, what was the first one? I don't know. It was like sometime in the late 90s. BOFH era. Yeah, it was like when that began, right? When we realized that we should do nice things for for the Morlocks. And like, <laughs> and he took us to a bar and the nice gesture, you know? So there's this team of like 20 sysadmins. He takes us to a bar and he's like, I don't know, like, you're all kind of the dumb guys, though. Like you're the ones who like couldn't hack it as software developers, and we we're like, motherfucker, it's Systems Administrator Appreciation Day. Like, <laughs> like you brought us here to buy us beer because you were supposed to appreciate us. And he's like, I mean, I would, but like, you know, I, I remember the, the money quote was, "I'm on the patent for the Windows Registry." <gasps> And of course, wow. this room full of systems administrators were like, "Yeah, and that was fucking dumb." <laughs> like, congratulations on bringing that one into the world, guy. And like, it's you know, yeah. what a dick. Yeah, and like, <laughs> you know, I feel like that was in terms of the gnarliest culture change. It was that one. Like, yeah. it was the one where like I had to sort of convince myself that like that that wasn't because I was actually not as good as those people. There wasn't actually like a, a qualitative difference between me and them. It was just it was just that I liked this piece and they liked the other piece. And like. 
you know, in the early days of Chef, we saw that all the time. Like yeah. we would sit around conference tables and I would have, there'd be a manager and then like a line of, you know, five little mm-hmm. bunnies, you know, like sitting there and, and they'd be like, well, I mean, everything you just said sounds great. I understand why we should automate things. My people aren't smart enough to do that. Though. They're not, you know, this Ruby thing, it's bridged too far. Yeah. And the people he's talking about are literally at the table. <laughs> like they're sitting next to him like, yeah. oh. And you could watch them deflate, oh. you know? They were like, oh, I'm not as good. And you're like, oh, That's man. And like, so then you spend terrible. a lot of time calling out that dude and being like, yeah. all right, then you were set up. Yeah. You know, like you as a manager, if that's true, if these four people sitting next to you are the chuckliest chuckleheads of all time, like then you, it's time to quit. You, you know, know, it's time, it's time to get out. If there's one thing I have learned in, as a manager, it's that people are generally dying to be asked to step up. All they want to do is be great. They do. And they yeah. want someone to see that in them and just, but this is probably a great time for you to introduce yourself. Oh yeah. I'm, uh, I'm Adam Jacob. I'm the uh, CTO at Chef. I'm a co-founder of Chef. Um, I wrote Chef originally. I wrote another thing called Habitat here in the last couple of years. And yeah, like I've been doing the operations, systems administrator, DevOps thing for a while. What I'm, I'm 40, and I started when I was 16. So everything in like all that whole Man, period was that. I started when I was 17. I thought that I was early. Yeah, I ran my first bulletin board when I was eight. Damn. So technically. That was systems wow. administration. Yeah, you went, so. Wow. Text adventures you when went. I was 12, but only because yeah. we didn't have bulletin boards in Australia. We didn't get a, a Trans Pacific link until 89. You couldn't, but you had modems, right? You could have. We had modems. Yeah, you could have. You had bulletin boards, boards, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you must have. They only got like five packets at a time, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. FidoNet took three extra days <laughs> oh my God. to get from, uh, from that Australia. Was like, yeah. <laughs> other people had that. that. Yeah, exactly. That was for them. So you and I have known each other since Chef was Ops Code, which yeah. makes wow. us. Really old friends now. Sure, a decade. One of the cool things about Ops Code was that you were taking these ideas about configuration automation and how to reinvent systems administration into the enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the software companies here in the Valley sell to other software companies here in the Valley and the great worm Ouroboros devours its own tail. But you went out into the real America and uh, <laughs> tell us about that. Tell us about like selling config automation to banks and insurance companies. and yeah. You know, what happened was that we were consultants, right? And so we were selling absolutely to the Ouroboros worm. So like we would do fully automated infrastructure for startups. You'd pay us a flat fee. We would automate all your stuff. The fastest we turned it around was like 24 hours. But part of the plan was that we were going to have this like this code base that we could use to get leverage out of all these customers. And then we would just be like Ursus admins, you know, like we would run thousands of companies on this hyper-efficient code base. And that was just a dirty lie. Like that just didn't. <laughs> it wasn't a dirty lie. It just didn't work. You know? A consultant who lied. It wasn't. Well, we didn't shocked. lie to our customers. Our customers were stoked. We lied to ourselves. <laughs> the cu- every individual customer was fat. They were great. Like I could have kept being a consultant for the customers forever. But our own lives were not what we wanted because managing that code base across everybody was awful. Turns out, like that's the sort of the genesis of Chef. And it also is the genesis of the large enterprise. If you think about companies as they grow, you've got thousands of applications. We were at a customer not that long ago. They gave us a list of 1,200 and change commercial off-the-shelf software packages that they use to run a bank. Yeah. And like that software they did not write. Sometimes they had commissioned on spec. Sometimes it's stuff that they bought as a commercial software package. And all of that software has to get deployed. It has to be managed. People's jobs depend on it. 
And it runs, you know, a multi-billion dollar line of business, much bigger than almost anything yep. Silicon Valley has created in the entire history of its wealth creation. There's, look, there's exceptions, but like the vast majority of them don't touch the the GEs of the world, mm-hmm. the Fords of the world. Like you don't even, uh, this Credit Suisse, I was yep. in, like I was in the Credit Suisse building not that long ago in New York City and it's like this massive marble hall, like it right. could have been Roman for all of its like insanity in a good and terrifying way. And I think, you know, what I learned was that if you went to those places, the number one thing people say to you is, I don't know, like, essentially what what we said to ourselves on Systems Administrator Appreciation Day, right? It was like, well, we're not good enough to do that. Like, we're the garbage place where we don't know how to have nice things or, you know, we We can't learn things. Can't learn things. It's all a mess. There's all this politics, which is true for all of them. But then... If you just say back to someone, well, really? Because like I've met the Facebook folks, and they're great, but you're every ounce as smart as they are. Like, there's nothing about it's not your talent, it's not your intelligence. It's it's just that the difference between you and them is that when they go to work in the morning, they tell each other they should, and when you go to work every morning, you tell yourself you can't, and like that's it. And at some point, I think the enterprise will wake up someone, some large organization is going to wake up in the morning someday, and they're going to look at their bank account, and they're going to look at their balance sheet, and they're going to look at Facebook, and they're going to go, eh, wait a second. Like, I can have all of the nice things. Like, I can have anything in technology that I want. And the only difference is that we're not asking for it. And so, you know, over the last decade or so of doing that in the enterprise, the big thing that has changed is that. It's gone from us sitting in someone's building telling them they can have nice things to them coming to me and going, I know that I'm supposed to have nice things. You know, like I'm supposed to have continuous delivery and I'm supposed to have observability and I'm supposed to have all these things. I have no idea how to go from where I am to this like Martian. So, this is the question that I keep hearing is like the how. How do we get there? This is literally why we decided to start this podcast is because. People keep saying, that all sounds great. Yeah. How do we do it? How do we do that? Yeah. So, Adam, how do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> I so, don't. Okay. So, I think that part of it, you, you were teeing in on, on the, um, the perceived status differential between dev and ops. Yeah. And I think this is why, like, phase one of DevOps was very much ops people. You must be more like software engineers. You must learn to write code. Sure. And I feel like. And developers the, can be more like us. Well, I feel like it's just in the last couple of years that it's really swung back the other way. And sure. people are saying much more, okay, software engineers, it's your turn. You need to learn yeah. to operate your own things. And then they're like, oh, but I can't ever be woken up. Like, I didn't sign up for that. Literally, right. people will say this. Well, of course, because look, privilege is a bummer to give yeah. away. Like, <laughs> like, like, how do we? <laughs> like, well, I don't so want to get, like, well, get woken up either. So I don't either. It I'm sucks. over 30. I, yeah, I got, I got family. I'm <laughs> but, done. But I, so, like, obviously, there's ops in, in our masochism, and like, that hasn't really helped things. Sure. Um, and I'm over that. But I feel like this should be a not depressing message. Like it's so much better when you're a software owner, not just a developer. I feel like developers are like absentee parents. You know, like yeah. sometimes you just like drop in their sperm and just walking away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's some truth to that. It, but it, it's better, isn't? Yeah, isn't I think work better when you have like when you care, when you feel viscerally, viscerally attached to what of you're course. doing, and you care about it, and you identify with it. Look, everybody has. It doesn't matter where you work or what you've done, you have a moment in your career if you've been in it for any really relatively useful, meaningful period of time, right? And this is like, this is the thing you can't see when you're like year two in your career. You might be having it at year two in your career, but you can't like see it because you don't have the benefit of just hindsight, like just just gnarly, grizzled age. 
is what allows you to believe it's true, which is that there are moments where you're awesome. Like if you stay in the same field, it's because there's a minute where you were the LeBron James of that thing. Like you were the like best in the universe at that problem. Sports analogy is probably the wrong one, but like <laughs> just it's fine. Like like there was a minute where you were the best. And those minutes carry you for years afterwards. You know? You're like, "Man, we crushed it. That was perfect. Like we were the best." And for a lot of people, you have that experience at some point in your career and then you sort of forget. That that was a choice. That like you made a decision to be that person. You made a decision to like to make a difference or to change something or to or to move at that speed and to just be to to make an impact like that. And that invitation to make an impact again often sort of wakes people up. And so you know, there's two pieces to the change. There's the technical like how do we do it? Like what's the yeah. what? Are, how do we put the system together in a way that works that we can yeah. understand? And what are the components we use? You know, the cultural piece of it is mostly just about that. It's mostly about just waking up and going, hey, you know, if I'm in the large enterprise and it takes eight weeks to get a virtual machine provision, which would be normal. Mm-hmm. So six to eight weeks, I would call that your average. For getting a virtual machine, for getting a VMware virtual machine that you can log into six to eight weeks. And that was orders of magnitude faster than it used to take you to get Provisioning hardware. data centers. And now, if you're doing a good job, you can do the same thing with some more automation Let's call it 17 minutes, mm-hmm. right? So that's amazing. So you won. You do a victory lap on 17 minutes. But like you worked at Facebook. If it took 17 minutes for you to get a machine <laughs> to log into, what would have happened? <laughs> you know, like it's just not, that's not a thing. No. And Lopak like, would be burning. <sighs> there's no, there's no seven, like 17 minutes. It, it was so it was interminable is, to even provision. Like it, we, where there was a pool of least resources, so you could have them faster yeah. than that because the minute it might take to spin them up was like well, it's one minute. And so what like, you're saying is we paint a better world and we just be ambitious and, and look at the benefits. Yeah, but we haven't even people, woken up to the like. If you're in the enterprise, no one has yet really gotten to a place where they've internalized that they're allergic to the 17 minutes. Right, sure. the second they're still like 17 minutes. Like that was dope, and it is dope, and you should celebrate it. It's amazing. So if you're the person who got it to 17 minutes, God bless you. That was super hard. Also, you got to get it down to 30 seconds. You know. What I'm finding really charming about this conversation is I have this theory that people create the software and the companies that are an expression of their core values. So Honeycomb is like the distillation of of charity's restless curiosity. And what you're describing is taking these automation techniques out of big, very technical companies like Facebook and Google and taking them to the rest of the world, but taking the culture as well and telling people, yes, you can have best-in-class tooling. Yes, you deserve it. Yes, you can be just as awesome as those guys in the palaces in Menlo Park. Yes, and it probably won't look like the place in Menlo Park. Like you, To your question earlier about like, well, how will we do it, there's sort of, there, right now, the most common line of thinking is that what we will do is we will take some large enterprise. Pick one. You guys pick. Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble. And what we're going to do is we're going to rewrite Procter & Gamble so that it works the way Google works. So if Google had built Procter & Gamble, what would Google have done? And that's our strategy. That's our big theory. And like, if you think about that from a software architecture point of view, if you were in like a code review and somebody told you that their big plot was that they were going to take the entirety of your business, burn it to the ground, and then rebuild it as if they were another organization they have never seen before. Rewrites don't work. In a pattern they've never seen, like, 
maybe they work, maybe. But like, boy, you better need it. <laughs> you know, like we had to destroy the ooh. village in order to save it. Yes, we everyone, everyone must move. <laughs> you know, and and like that right this second, that's the predominant strategic theory. Is if I if I take the tools and the culture and the pieces of the palaces in Menlo Park, and I somehow figure out how to go from being Procter and Gamble to being Google, then it's going to work. And I just I think that that's false. Like I think the truth is what's going to happen is someone at Procter and Gamble. It won't be me. It won't be Charity. It's going to be someone at Procter and Gamble who picks up Honeycomb, who picks up Chef, who picks up Kubernetes, who picks up whatever, and they're going to make it Procter and Gamble. Like what pops out the other side, it won't be us who tells Procter and Gamble how to transform. Procter and Gamble is going to transform. And then they're going to tell everybody else after a decade or more of us being like, hey, you should try it this way. What about doing it like this? Hey, you could do that. Google does it this way. How about this? Facebook works like that. They're going to be like, yeah, hold my beer. This is how Procter and Gamble does it. We're deploying a hundred thousand times a day. We're doing the world's greatest science you've ever seen, and we're adapting technology every inch as fast. We can get resources whenever we need them. We spun up a cancer research project in ten minutes on internal hardware. Uh, we developed custom motherboards to do the blah blahs, and everybody's going to be like, "You did what?" And Procter and Gamble's, you know, stock price will go through the roof, and next thing you know, the enterprise will actually start transforming. But they, they'll be transforming to themselves, not to us. So still my favorite example of this is FedEx in the 90s when it reinvented itself as logistics and you could track your package on the web. That was like mind-blowing. Such a big deal. And to me, it seems like a better metaphor is that book, Buildings That Learn, and rebuilding a modern building in the shell of a a factory or a a brewery or something like that. You want to retain as much of the structural integrity and the original bones while putting new facilities and and new capabilities inside that envelope. Yes, the soul matters. Yes, yeah. Like you can't just say that that, that you don't need those things. One of the biggest anti-patterns I see with Silicon Valley companies going into the enterprise is precisely that arrogance you're talking about, the burn it all down, sorry, Charity. I know that's one of your catchphrases. What they completely overlook is the domain expertise within companies yeah. like State Farm, who know everything there is to right. know about insurance. What do, you, what do you know about State Farm? Right. Nothing. Right. Um, and also, though, if if you're at State Farm, and what you want to know is, what have other people like State Farm tried to do to get better at leveraging technology to do insurance? I've been at five other insurance companies in the last decade, and I can tell you how what they did and what worked and what didn't work, and I can point you in the direction of where success lives. Like I can't tell you precisely what to do because I I'm not State Farm, you know. Like I don't have that domain expertise, so I can't I can't actually fix it for you. I can help you move that way, and I can remind you that it won't be an outsider. It won't be me that's going to fix that. It's going to be you that fixes it. And my job is to get you to a place where you realize. So that. how do you inspire people to want to make the changes? First off, you just ask them if they like where they are, <laughs> and if they want it to be different or not. And I mean, the answer to that is yes, you know. But then the the next piece is that it's a little like telling someone that they could go to Mars and no one's ever been to Mars. Uh, but let's assume that we have a Martian colony. And in our little analogy, Facebook or Google or whatever is the Martian colony. Isn't Las Vegas and on Mars? You, Looks like it's on Mars. You have Mars. led directly into my analogy. So <laughs> so you're, you know, in wherever you are, and you've never been to Mars, but you know there are people on Mars, and you're like, but I've been to Utah or I've been to Nevada. Is that like Mars? And you're like, I mean, kinda, in that there's like rocks and it's dry, I guess, but like, no, it's nothing like Mars. And so the first thing you have to get is very quickly, you have to get people out of the environment they're in 
and have them spend a minute building something, anything, in the way that people who work quickly and that have this experience of the big web have. So how quickly can I get you to know what it feels like to be on Mars? And your first moment after you feel that is like, oh, that felt good. And you're like, yeah, you want that again? And they're like, yeah. And you can ask them. You can be like, hey, do you want to go back to the way you worked the day before? And they'll be like, never again. Like, no, never, ever, ever. And you're like, okay, well, can you do what you just did inside of your company? And they're like, no. <laughs> and it's because there's this huge list of obstacles between you and, and, and that outcome. There's corporate proxies and firewall rules and network teams and all sorts of stuff in between you. And so then their bosses and their executive sponsors have to get to a place where they too have seen that their people can do that work at that rate of speed and that they can they can exist in that way. And then you start saying, well, you know you can do it because you did it when we were in this hotel room together. Like you did it, like you know that you can get to Mars. So let's go do it. Like now we have to go knock all these obstacles down. When you do the reverse, and we tried this for years, where you just start arguing about why the obstacles don't matter, you get murdered. You know, like the whole organization will rise up and just find you and kill you in the night. It's one of the best descriptions of moments to joy I've ever heard. Yeah. What is the appetite in the enterprise for this new generation of software development, which is much more agile and responsive and where you can push out features very quickly and A-B test features with different populations? Do you see traditional enterprise looking at those kinds of development methodologies with lust or thirst in their eyes? Yes. The issue, though, is that they've never been to Mars. Right. So, like... The vocabulary gets adopted so quickly, right? You know, like it's it just it takes no time at all. So observability is a good example. Like I don't know how long it's going to be before somebody who's running, I don't know, CA's monitoring stack from fifteen years ago, whose product I don't even know the name of the product. I'm just assuming they had one. Unicenter uh, TNG. There we go. It tells me that they don't need to do observability because they have Unicenter TNG. You know, and that that's their observability answer. And like. If it hasn't happened already, it's like three, two, one. And you know, you see it with Agile, where you go in and everybody's like, I haven't met an enterprise in the last decade who didn't tell me that they did Agile software development. Now, the number of those enterprises who, if I went to a software developer inside their teams and said, hey, tell me the story of why you're building what you're building today. Tell me the reason. What's the, what's the impact? And they'd be like, they can't do it. They, don't got, they got nothing. But you know, the vocabulary of Agile, it's all there. You know, like we're doing scrums and backlogs and, you know, we're doing it all, but it's not. So the risk is that the, the appetite is there, the hunger is there, but the confidence gap is real. And so when somebody shows up and tells you, hey, I'll teach you Agile, okay, <laughs> who's teaching you? <laughs> and what did you learn? And, and what was that experience like? And so I think the appetite is there. I think the skill to do it in a really incredible way is there. I think the magical combination of appetite, and skills and guidance hasn't hit yet in a large enterprise yet. Next three years it will. Someone's gonna What pop. do you think is driving the the actual need for it? It depends on the industry. But like if you look at retail, if you are in retail and you can't compete with Amazon on retail technology utilization, you're gonna die. And it just is what it is. So when I say when I say you're gonna die, it doesn't mean that you'll disappear necessarily. Will you grow at the rate that you want to grow? Will you wind up in a niche that you wish you weren't forced into occupying? You Will know? your shareholders be happy on the quarterly calls? <laughs> yes, you know, and like those answers are, are no. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of don't have a choice in those cases. 
I think when you look at other industries, what you're seeing is this cascade of that side effect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're, let's say you're a rent-to-own furniture company. I don't know how many rent-to-own furniture companies there are in the United States, more than one. But one of them is going to figure out that, you know, what would be great is if I could sit at home on my iPad and scroll through furniture and then add the furniture to the cart and have it all delivered to my house and then you take away my old furniture and you bring the new furniture and that's the new rent-to-own furniture experience. And so whoever does that first gets to win for a while while everybody else figures out what to do next. And, and if they did more than just develop that product but instead they developed the muscle that allowed them to innovate in their own market that way, like they're going to extend that leadership, their shareholder value is going to grow, and like you'll dominate that market for some extended period of time. And that's that's the driver. And so it's why it's increasingly all of the enterprise. It's not just banks or or those sorts of things. We talk a lot about the need for these new ways of developing and managing services in the context of very large-scale distributed systems with tons of sort of emergent behaviors and complexities. Did those kinds of environments exist on the enterprise side? Yeah, yeah, that is the enterprise. It's a different vector of complexity, though, isn't it? You talk about the 1,200 applications and off-the-shelf software that they're managing. Is it the same in terms of scale? Is it the same? I mean, I think it is. It's different architectural scale. So if you, in that, like, if I have, if I, let's use the Amazon homepage as an example. So there's like, I don't know, let's call it 300 services between friends. None of us work at Amazon. And (laughs) that number is over a decade old, so it's probably thousands now. Or maybe it's a monolith again, and like it all went back to being written in C++. Point is, there's a bunch of services, they build up the web page. How different is that from the 800 pieces of commercial software that fulfill consumer loans in a large enterprise? Like, I don't think it's that different except the factoring of the software. Like, the architecturally, it's different, no doubt. And the rate of transaction is different. So, you know, there's many, many, many more people uh, doing many, many more things on the Amazon homepage than are, than are getting consumer loans. So, like, that's different. But the need to understand what's happening across the system isn't. The difference is that the number of different, like, high cardinality information, mm-hmm. that flow is different. So there's many, many more individual users who might have a problem. Mm-hmm. There's many, many more of those things in the Amazon world than there is in the other one because the transaction flow is different. But the way that we set up those enterprise systems originally was that because we understood the enterprise architecture, we could spend a bunch of time trying to analyze where failure was possible. Mm-hmm. And then we would put monitoring sort of focused on those failure points. Yep. And you do that in the microservice world too. But you sort of are getting to a place where once you start letting people deploy at random, and once you start letting the system sort of emerge in that way, it drives you toward that observability Yeah, I mean, you can only plan for the outages you know are going to happen. You can't plan for the outages that you didn't see coming. That's right. And so the, the velocity change in the enterprise is what drives the change in the way we think of observability. It's not the architecture. Do you see what I mean? It's not yeah. the it's not that you've factored the application differently. That's not it. It's the rate of change and when and how that change is triggered and the rate at which we can understand it. That's what drives it. So it's not it's not because you're a microservice or a monolith. It's because the velocity of that thing gets bigger and as it gets bigger, your and, ability and to the number to of components and their interactions because 
for so long, like the way that we've debugged systems is with all of this intuition that we have. Yeah. Just like submerged intuition and scar tissue from undergoing all of these events. And like, I have this model. That's why the per- person who's always the best at debugging is always the one who's been there the longest. Right. Because they have the most context. And our tools have been so bad that we just look at our dashboards and in our brains, we try to make a model of the system that explains the data that we're seeing. Right. That's I mean, that's literally it, enterprise architecture. Yes. Like what we do is we build a model that tells us what we believe the well, system but, is. But the but yeah. we haven't really had the models. Like we haven't we had like in BI, you know, they they can ask a small question, look at the answer, and ask another question and iterate on it. So the information is not just in your brain, it's in the tool. Yes. And I would argue like in in those enterprise architectures that model is not executable. It's on paper. It's like it's in conversation, it's in people's heads. And like when it comes time to like debug the model, the only reason it works is because the rate of change of the model is so low that whatever broke stays broke or mm-hmm. whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. and so even if you didn't refactor it, like there's a thousand components already in the consumer lending thing. Yeah. That's the product is consumer lending. It's not the thousand other pieces. It's it's the final outcome. And like they can't debug that. They got nothing. Like there might as well be like a weird culty like religion that's built up around like the consumer loving who's a what's it. You know, like they don't know how the system works. Nobody knows how the system works. They just know that if they don't mess with it, it's cool. And as soon as you start messing with it at a high rate, now it all pops back up again. You're like, hey, like I have no idea why this broke. What's it even do? You're like, I don't know, couldn't tell you. And you're like, well, can we put a system around it? And you're like, sure. In a year after I finally go spelunking to understand what it does. And that's the difference because if in in the model where what we're doing is just taking in all of that information and then letting me dig and explore and experiment against the information, that's why we need it. But it's you know I stand by that it's velocity that gets you there. It's not so. What is like the state of the art for deploying software today? For deploying software today, is it self serving if I say it's Habitat? (laughs) I was expecting that, (laughs) Um, but but it is Habitat. Yeah, I mean. I believe that we have been approaching the way that we factor the systems wrong sort of this whole time. We've been building up infrastructure and then we've been holding the application as the final sort of pinprick on the top of this massive infrastructure mountain. And whenever what we have is an application problem, our answer as an industry is more infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, So we go, hey, I have a deployment problem. And you go, hey, you know what I got for you? How about a container scheduler that replaces all of the network and all of the CPU scheduling and does all the deployment for you? And they're like, sure, sounds great. Do I have a deployment problem anymore? And you're like, no. And they're like, dope. And so next thing you know, we're container scheduling. But, of course, there's always a but. And the but is, well, what's the software that goes inside? How's that behave? How does it update itself? How does it do dynamic configuration? Can I check its health? Where does the statistics and the data I should be gathering for observability come from? How do I know how to pick it up? How do I know how to retrieve it? If I add a new one, how do I know it got into the system in the way that I expected? And like, how do I run it on my laptop? Can I run all of the services I need to test the service I want to develop locally on my laptop in the same way that I run them in production Mm -hmm. across a fleet of hundreds of thousands of systems spread across multiple data centers? And the answer to those questions is kind of no, right? Yeah. And you know whether it's Habitat or something like Habitat, the idea that the application is responsible for its behavior yeah. across the entirety of its life cycle, from cradle to grave, from how it's built and its build environment and its dependencies to how it deploys, to how it updates its, itself, uh, how you check its health. I think the you know. application first is, is clearly the way that we need to be thinking about everything. 
it kind of mirrors what we've been talking about, moving from like the health of the system to the health of the event. Like all that matters is that your request can get the resources that it needs in the application to complete. Like yes. that's it. Everything else is somebody else's problem. That's right. And one way you know that you've found the right architecture. I think there's two ways you know that you're onto something clever. So way one is that someone comes out of the woodwork who is relatively orthodox and goes, that will never work. Your thing is a stupid thing. My thing already does that thing. So that's clue one. And look, it doesn't mean that every idea you have that someone tells you is a bad idea is a good idea. Because 99% of your ideas are bad ideas. So most of the time people come out of the woodwork and they're like, that's a bad idea. It's because it's a bad idea. But I've never had an actually good idea that didn't have people coming out. Like I've had lots of bad ideas where everybody was like, okay, seems like a good It's good <laughs> enough. You know? But I've never had a really good idea that didn't have people coming at me being like, that, don't do that. Like, you're dumb. And so that's sort of thing one. And then where was I heading? Because I got distracted by my own. We were talking about application first. I was talking first. about application first. And then the other one is that the things you have to put around the thing you're automating or the thing that you're abstracting, everything else clicks into place. When you find the right architectural shape, everything else gets easy. You're like, ah. Oh. Like all of a sudden, it's like when you're putting IKEA furniture yep. together, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Go get the mallet, honey." Yep. Yep. Like that's when you know Everything you're doing it wrong. Like you yeah, should not exactly. need a rubber mallet. We talk about this a lot because, like, one of the hardest problems that we have is just convincing people that it can be so much easier than what they have now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like they're like, "No, you can't just ask the question of a high cardinality." You know, blah blah right. blah. You need your logs and your metrics and your fucking everything. I had this conversation as I was leaving with a new hire who was asking me a question about Habitat, and he's like, "You know, it would be great." If we could send people an email when a dependency needs to be updated, so uh-huh. they would know that they need to rebuild. And I was like, "Do I have a story for you? <laughs> I can take all of the software that's ever been uploaded to the depot, look at its list of transitive dependencies, build a graph, find how many independent spans of that graph exists, and then compile the world. And that's precisely what we do. So when there's a new version of OpenSSL, we just recompile every piece of software that has a dependency, even a transitive one, on OpenSSL and build you a new release. And it's there, and you deployed it in the morning, and you didn't do anything. And I can do that no matter what infrastructure you're running the application on. And when yeah. you say it, you're like, no, you can't. Yeah. Like Saying no, you can't is the easiest thing in the world. It's like, uh-uh. You are full of lies. And like and it's fine. I'm not full of lies. It super works. And so like, you know, but it's gonna take a minute. Because yeah. right but, this second but, there's but a gap hand, between vendors you know. have a history of not being trusted because they do make all these magical claims that are, they, they yeah. can't. Look, I want my daughter to go to college. Yeah. And like I I got a mortgage and like I sell software for a living, no question. And like that's all true, but how can you tell when a vendor is reliable? When they're focused on whether or not I'm successful as opposed to whether or not I got a deal. When a vendor shows up and tells me that they can solve my problem if only I give them money, then I don't trust them. Mm -hmm. When a vendor shows up and tells me, I'm going to solve your problem, then you're going to pay me money. Those are the vendors I trust. Uh, But it's in that order. Like, does my problem get solved? If so, money flows. Money's no problem. So we talked a lot about culture, but like, what comes next? What still really needs to happen in engineering culture? Well, I think we have a dramatic, still, inclusivity problem. And that inclusivity problem is part and parcel of what is also a diversity problem. But the inclusivity problem is bigger, you know? Yeah. Like earlier today, there was like a Twitter kerfuffle where the register, 
uh, if everybody knows the register, and like they have a tendency to write offensive headlines. Mm-hmm. And this one was ridiculous. It was like essentially talking about like sex and intel. It was like I don't know. I mean, I could barely read the article because you can't really get past the headline because the headline was like you know I kind of don't want to repeat it, but it was awful. And so uh, one of the members of our community like commented back to the register. They were like, seriously, like where is this? No, like this is not good. And like what they got back was like 20 furious tweets from the register being like, why are you such a wimp? Show me where the bad headline hurts you, you know? And like other people piling on being like, wow, why would you say that? And you're blah, blah, blah. And so we canceled our sponsorship of their conferences. Cool. And walked away. And like, you know, I don't think, like we don't deserve a cookie, but it's like, A, what that person did by saying, hey, that headline's awful. If I came across that headline on my own, I don't know that I'd have taken to Twitter and said, this is unacceptable, what are you doing? I'm pretty sure I'd have just gone without, I'd gone about my day. You know? Yeah, inclusivity is an interesting thing. I come from very poor background, and I think that I have often felt more out of place due to that than my gender. Oh yeah, class is a huge one that we don't talk about. Age is another. Yeah. Yes. But I think it's it, it's actually related to what we were talking about with the vendor Stockholm syndrome. People get accustomed to a certain level of friction, a certain level of restriction in their daily life, yes. and they're really reluctant to change that, even for something that would be easier. I mean, it's very apparent to me that including more people in the software development process increases the number of points of view that go into that well, software, improves the best practices, and improves the products. It's, it's kind of the same thing as why you know people are scared to ship more often. Right. Because, oh, but if we change it, who knows? It might all fall over. It might be really painful. They, you, they'd rather stick with a bad reality that yeah. they're familiar with than tra- move into an unknown future. Very risk yes. The bad news is we're moving into the unknown yeah. future whether we like yeah, it or going, not. You're sort of going no matter what you do. Right, yeah. I, right. I mean, the, I also think the the biggest battle isn't the overt one, it's the implicit one. So yeah. like, we have a board member, I'll tell my own story because then I can be as I can I can name the truth of it. So we were it was a year long ago, very early on in the life of OpsCode. And we were talking about getting some some help, some outside software developers to help move pieces of the product forward. And we were talking about like who we should hire and where we should hire them. And nowhere in the list was an Indian outsource firm. There were none. There were zero. And so we were in this board meeting and my board member was like, Really? Like not a single Indian software development firm is on the list, like in terms of quality or price or any of those things. And we were around the table and everybody was like, no, because they're all awful. Like, like everybody knows that like Indian software development is like the bottom of the barrel. And my board member was like, Really? Really? That is some racist shit. Wow. And we were like, Really? <laughs> and like my first reaction was like, I'm not racist. Like I have Indian friends. You know, we you're just like, all know this to be true. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Like of course, you know, like of course I'm not. And then like, you know, you let it sit for a second and I was like, Yeah, okay. You're super right. Like, I didn't mean to be, but that was that was super racist. And it turns out, by the way, like we've had incredibly fruitful relationships with uh, Indian software development firms for the better part of a decade. The same people who are like they might as well be a part of the company for for as great work that they do and as long as they've been there. And like that stuff, like that stuff is the next frontier of it because it's like, hey, you know, the the obvious stuff. The register writes a ridiculous headline. Like, yeah. okay, that stuff's easy enough to attack. Yeah. But all that like 
implicit internal stuff. That's the that's the bummer. That's and the it's a good story one. because it does describe the way those of us with power and authority need to sit with that discomfort, need yeah. to sit with the fact that we are biased, we are limited in our perspectives, and to move into a glorious future, we just have to get past that. We have to own it and, and move on. And you need people who will tell you yeah. that that's happening, and you need people who will give you grace, yeah. you know, who will be like, look, I know that that's not because like yes I have no hair and a not, beard but I'm not yeah. like, it's not the call out culture sort of thing just as much as uh, yes which has its downsides yes, it does. like look it's, it makes everything it really terrifying does. it makes people they're less willing to speak like there's a bunch yeah. there that I think is is tough yeah. but no one's motivated by shame people are motivated by yeah shame. but you but you are motivated by wanting to be better yes. you know like I want to be like I don't that's not the person I want to be like yeah. I want to be and like he said it in a hard way in that minute, but like it worked, and like yeah. he then backed it off and like explained himself. But like it was a, it was a loving prod. But I think that that that's the next sort of culture of frontier for sure. Yep. Kudos to that guy, Adam. Thank you Bill so Bryan. much. Thanks. It's been thanks for coming. So great having you on the show. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or speaker, find us on Twitter at ollycast o eleven y cast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Have a lovely day.